Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 195. My name's Terry Frost and this time around I'm celebrating the career of the late Gene Wilder. So I'm going to be looking at um, his film career, some of his attitudes towards things and just kind of having a look at why so much love came in Gene Wilder's direction when he died this week. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll start looking at the career of this very interesting man. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks, and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films, because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless... That's the rule, more than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and leave feedback there and get updates, or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through. This podcast may contain adult materials, so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over. Hey, how's everybody doing? Um, It's fine here. The weather is warming up. The Manchurian pear tree in the front garden has tons and tons of white blossoms on it, which means that the weather is improving and summer is on its way, which is good for me, of course. So this time around, I decided we're looking at the career of Gene Wilder. Um, a couple of reasons why. First off, of course, he just died. Um, but the other reason is I was kind of looking through his career because uh, I did talk about Willy Wonka on the ABC Northern Territory chat with Rebe- Rebecca McLaren this week. And I found some interesting and intriguing things about Gene Wilder while I was doing research for that. A little bit more that we could do on the radio. So I thought, yeah, it's, it's worth doing and it's worth commemorating an interesting actor. Over the last couple of um, podcasts, I've been looking at other actors, people like Nicole Williamson, who are very, very different actors, of course, than Gene Wilder. But one of the things that I'm kind of hooked on at the moment is actors who have a distinctive style and whose character carries through into their acting a lot of people hide behind the acting but there are actors who their essential nature is brought out by the work they do and i think like nicole williamson gene wilder is one of those actors so i'm going to take a look through his career i've um, had a quick look at a few things to remind myself a little bit more about his work and i think that his career is worth commemorating so it's all going to be a bit scattershot. Um, I haven't got any notes together. I'm going to be kind of cross-referencing memory and internet databases of various kinds and some reference books I've got on the hop. So if it comes out scrambled and incoherent, I apologise for that, but I really want to talk about the career and life of Jim Wilder in this podcast. So, as usual, here is the stuff I've been watching. Some of it's a bit obscure, but some of it's kind of not. Um, I did see an action film, fairly recent one, which came up either on Netflix or Stan called Survivor, which stars Mila Jovovich and Pierce Brosnan as an assassin. Um, it's the usual stuff, an assassin's planning a um, large explosion, quite a somewhat unusual explosion, on New Year's Eve at Times Square in New York. Um, the movie's filmed and set in London for the most part. And Mila Jovovich is um, an American security person working out of the embassy. 
who gets involved with some of the um, people who intend letting off this device and um, survives a bomb blast and is on the run with Pierce Brosnan's assassin who's known as the Watchmaker chasing her. It's not a bad kind of middle-range action film. It's um, not at the lower end of the budget scale but does have some nice action scenes and some interesting little ways of showing stuff. The limitations of the budget do show themselves at various times but it's not a bad little action at a watch if you're in the mood for that kind of thing and it shows Mila Jovovich playing something besides Alice in the seemingly endless um, Resident Evil series so I I watched that Um, let me see what else I found an obscure movie which was in Cinemascope but I've only found a pan and scan version of it it's a movie called Jazz Boat which stars Anthony Newley um, James Booth and uh, a few other people in it. It's from around 1960 and um, set in London. It's a kind of combination between um, a musical and a crime movie in some ways, but um, it's kind of interesting and not really great at the same time. It's got tons of character actors in it and uh, shows you a lot of London as it was in 1960. Uh, It was produced by Cubby Broccoli, who later went on to do the James Bond films, of course. But um, I haven't watched, finished watching that yet. I've still got it on the hard drive, so I'm going to watch the rest of it later. But yeah, it was kind of a, an interesting little kind of side thing to early 1960s British crime dramas. Uh, the other thing I watched, which was a film noir, a very, very small budget film noir, that I hadn't seen before called Five Steps to Danger, which stars Ruth Roman and Sterling Hayden. It's kind of like a, a road trip crime spy movie done on a small budget from the late 1950s. Uh, the, one of the bad guys in it is Werner Kemp, Klimpler, who played, um, of course, Colonel Klink in Hogan's Heroes about a decade later. But in this one, he's doing a character role and doing it quite well. Uh, I like Ruth, Ruth Roman as an actor. She didn't really get a lot of breaks in Hollywood. Uh, but she's kind of got an interesting earthiness about her. And she's um, she plays a lot more intelligent than a lot of other 1950s starlets. There's a movie that I'm going to be talking about in an upcoming Paleo Cinema podcast with um, a friend, Alicia, which um, has Ruth Roman in it. I'm not going to talk more about that now, but uh, I went back and kind of found this movie with her and Sterling Hayden. And uh, it's not a bad little film noir, Five Steps to Danger. Not a great one, but just um, kind of one of those little interstitial ones, a smaller one that really doesn't get a lot of love. Um, of course, I did watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory again on Blu-ray for the ABC Local Radio NT gig with um, Rebecca McLaren. And we both, of course, loved it. It's one of those movies which I'm going to talk about more in about 10 or 20 minutes. But um, the other two things I watched, are, there's a movie called The Touchables, which is a late 1960s kind of pop art groovy London kind of movie starring Judy Huxtable who later went on to be married to Peter Cook at one stage and um, yeah this one's kind of weird and wonderful it's more style no substance really about a group of girls who kidnap a male pop star and hold him prisoner in an inflatable dome in the English countryside one of the groovy things about it one of the things which is kind of a touchstone of 1960s pop culture is that the girls steal a dummy um, 
of Michael Caine as Harry Palmer and carried that around for a part of the film. So part of the film's got this dummy of Michael Caine in it. Um, yeah, it's style over substance. It's hard to get a decent copy of this one. I found a fairly reasonable um, pan and scan print of it, but it is a little hard to find. Uh, the other thing I watched, which is for this podcast as well, was everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, the Woody Allen movie. Now, watching Woody Allen movies, of course, is problematic because of Woody Allen's um, the, the things being said about him and his personal life. And there's a lot of kind of rapey jokes and, and shit like that in that movie. There's some bits that um, may have played as funny in the 1960s, but just don't sound funny now. There are a couple of bits that work, but um, overall it really doesn't play well in the 21st century the way maybe it did toward the middle of the 20th century. Uh, I'm going to talk more about Gene Wilder in that because Gene Wilder's in it. But um, apart from the scene with Gene Wilder, there wasn't anything that really grabbed me and fascinated me about everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask. So before I start the long rant about the career of Gene Wilder, I'm going to take a break and have a few sips of this very fine Bosnia-Herzegovina beer that I've got here. I went to um, a middle European deli in the area and bought a couple of bottles of Sarajevsko beer. It's not a bad beer, it's actually quite nice, but I'm a little concerned because I looked at the label and the best buy date is about a month ago. So I'm not sure what's going to happen drinking beer that's a month out of date, but as soon as I know of any adverse consequences of doing so, I'll let you know. Anyway, but while I'm on the break, I'm going to play you a slightly weird little mashup or remix that I found on the Interwebs. And it's a remix of The Doors doing Light My Fire with the theme from the 1960s British comedy Steptoe and Son, which was the TV series that they based Stanford and Son on for American people. So this is a kind of mashup of the two of them. They're quite, um, un- it's an unusual little mashup, let's just say that. So enjoy and I'll be back in a couple of minutes. Set the night on fire. Yeah. 
Okay, so on to the life and career of Gene Wilder. Uh, Gene Wilder owes most of his success to Bertolt Brecht indirectly. It's not that Bertolt Brecht gave him a leg up in his career or anything like that. But um, he was quite important at one crucial moment in Gene Wilder's life. And that resulted in the arc of his career that we're now very familiar with. But I'll get back to the Bertolt Brecht connection in a few minutes. Um, Gene Wilder was actually born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1933. And um, his father made miniature booze and beer bottles, which is kind of an interesting career to have during Prohibition, but this is, this is what he did. Both sides of his family were Russian Jewish immigrants. Jim Wilder's original name was Jerome Silberman. Um, his mother got rheumatic fever when he was five years old, and one of the doctors said, try to make your mother laugh because it'll help her bring up phlegm or something like that. And um, he did, and he then went and saw a couple of stage production of various things and caught the acting bug very early and um, was taught at a young age by his sister's acting teacher. He was about 13. He studied with this acting teacher for a couple of years. Uh, his mother realised that his potential wasn't being met at the school he was in where they were living. And so she sent him to a place called uh, Black Fox in Hollywood, Black Fox Military Institute. It was a private school um, on Wilcox Avenue in Hollywood, near Wilshire Country Club. And Gene Wilder didn't have a good time there. He was the only Jewish kid in the school. He said he was beaten up and sexually assaulted while he was there and had a seriously bad experience of it. Um, the school had a few alumni who were quite famous. Larry Hagman, for instance, went to school there. And Charles Chaplin Jr., the son of uh, Charlie Chaplin, um, went to school there. But um, for Wilder, it was an incredibly bad experience. School shut down in 1968, so it's not there anymore, but um, it was very formative and quite um, a dark period in the life of Gene Wilder. After a short stay at that school, he went back to Milwaukee and started acting on the stage at a very early age. Uh, he did Shakespeare, played Balthazar in Romeo and Juliet, and uh, graduated from Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. He then went to college at um, the... University of Iowa studying communications and theatre arts and graduated there. He went to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in Bristol, England in 1955. He studied fencing and um, became a school fencing champion. Uh, he went back to um, the United States after that time in England, which is probably very formative. And um, he then enrolled in an acting school uh, the Herbert Bergdorf studio in Greenwich Village in New York and studied there under Uta Hagen and kind of learnt his, honed his skills there. That school has an incredible alumnus list. Um, the same the same school that taught Gene Wilder, the it's called the HB School. F. Murray Abram, Candace Bergen, Jeff Bridges, Matthew Broderick, Stocker Channing, Jill Clayberg, Robert Culp, Robert De Niro... Whoopi Goldberg, Hal Holbrook, Harvey Keitel, Jessica Lang, Jack Lemon, Marsha Mason, Bette Midler, um, Al Pacino, Charles Nelson Riley, Christopher Reeve, uh, Maureen Stamplin, John Stewart, Jerry Stiller, Barbara Streisand, and Sigourney Weaver all went to the same acting school in Greenwich Village as 
Gene Wilder did. So, I mean, in, in that company, you've got to admit that there's a pretty damn good school if that's the case. So he started acting um, in the early 1960s on, on and off Broadway. And that's where Bertolt Brecht comes in. Because um, he did a version of one of Brecht's plays, Mother Courage and Her Children, uh, on Broadway in 1963. Now, I ran 52 performances, so it wasn't too bad at all. And uh, the cast on this one's fairly interesting as well. Bruce Glover, the father of Crispin Glover, was in the cast. Uh, Barbara Harris, another fine actor. Um, Mike Kellen, who was in one of my favourite kind of B-movies, Banning with Robert Wagner, was in there. Zora Lampert was in the cast. John Randolph, who played the older version of Rock Hudson in the movie Seconds, was in there. Eugene Roach was in there. Gene Wilder and Anne Bancroft. Now, Anne Bancroft um, and Gene Wilder got on fine. And uh, she introduced him to her boyfriend, soon to be her husband, a guy called Melvin Kaminsky, who went by the name of Mel Brooks. So Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks became friends in the early 1960s, about 1963 this was. And that's how Bertolt Brecht is responsible for the career of Gene Wilder. Mother Courage and Her Children, Anne Bancroft, Mel Brooks, Gene Wilder. So Jim Wilder did a couple of bits of episodic television in the early and kind of mid-1960s. The first breakout role for him wasn't, as you might suspect, the producers with Mel Brooks and the irrepressible Zero Mostel. It was actually in a small role in Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. Jim Wilder plays a young undertaker who's kidnapped along with um, a woman he's interested in by Bonnie and Clyde, and it's only a small role, but it's kind of, you know, a breakout one. It, it showcased um, Gene Wilder's skill to kind of combine nervousness with comedy. And uh, if you can find the clip on YouTube, and I'm not going to play it because a lot of the clip that's on YouTube requires you to see Gene Wilder's reaction to something somebody else says. And that's the thing with a lot of Gene Wilder's acting. Um, a lot of it's in that kind of slow burn and his character thinking things through, which is something that comes up again in a, another movie of his in 1971. Then, of course, in 1968, he starred in The Producers, uh, Mel Brooks' first directorial film. And I, wanna, I prefer this version to the um, musical version from later on because it's, it was so transgressive at the time, whereas the musical version was very much in the mainstream. And even though I, I kind of liked the musical the original version for me is the best. And uh, here's a trailer for it just to get a bit of that magic of Gene Wilder playing Leo Bloom, the mild little accountant who gets sucked into Max Bielostock's scheme to make a fortune from an unsuccessful Broadway musical. It's absolutely amazing. But under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. How can a producer make more money with a flop than he could with a hit? Well, it's simply a matter of creative accounting. You simply raise more money than you really need. But what if the play was a hit? Well, then you'd go to jail. I am Max Bialystok. This is my associate, Mr. Bloom. Don't you see Bloom, darling Bloom, glorious Bloom? It's so simple. Step one, we find the worst play in the world, a surefire flop. We found a disaster, a catastrophe, an outrage, a guaranteed to close on one night beauty. Hey, please. 
I was born in Dusseldorf, and that is why they call me Robert. You mean Springtime Trip? You know who? Don't be stupid. Be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. Step two. I raise a million bucks. A lot of little old ladies in the world. Step three, you go back to work on the books. Only list of backers. One for the government, one for us. You can do it, Bloom. You're a wizard. That, sir, is the ultimate extent of my criminal life. Step four, we open on Broadway. And before you can say step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, we take our million bucks, we fly to Rio de Janeiro. Rio. Miserable, cowardly, wretched little caterpillar. Don't you ever want to become a butterfly? Don't you want to spread your wings and flap your way to glory? Nothing is going to go wrong. As a matter of fact, today, I have taken steps to make sure that springtime for Hitler will be a total disaster. I worked very, very hard, and I think I deserve a toy. A toy? A toy. Champagne? No, thanks. I have just ordered cafe. Sorry about the annoying music in that. It's actually a fan trailer. It was the best one I could find. But Leo Bloom, the character that Gene Wilder plays in the producers, is interesting because we see the worst of the character at the start of the film in that he's annoying, he's neurotic, he's um, kind of whiny. And um, he has a blue blanket, he has a security blanket, so he's a, a writhing mass of anxieties. So we see the worst of him at the start of the film, but then we grow to like the character. As Max Bielistock, the Zero Bustle character, draws him out of his little cocoon and lets him bloom, yeah, Leo Bloom, which for those of you who care is also a James Joyce reference, um, we kind of see Gene Wilder's skill as an actor. One of the things about Gene Wilder's acting is, even if he was crazy, neurotic and over the top in some of his roles, there was an essential humanity to them. There was a gentleness and a um, kind of whimsical wonder to what he did, which shows up in a number of his films. Some of the films, I mean, in Young Frankenstein, he, obviously he's got to play Frankenstein and, and play that over the top and there's not a lot of room in, in that kind of a movie for um, that kind of gentleness and whimsy to come out. It comes out in Blazing Saddles, of course. Jim, he's alcoholic gunfighter, who's almost a parody of Dean Martin's character in um, Rio Bravo. And it's made funny by referencing Rio Bravo. One of the things about Blazing Saddles, just as a side note, and I know I'm jumping ahead here, and I will be jumping around a little bit during the podcast as things occur to me. But one of the things about Blazing Saddles is the more you know about classic westerns, the funnier it is. The Randolph Scott joke in there, for instance, the bit at the start with Frankie Lane, all of this stuff intensely and deliberately references westerns of 20 years before or 10 or 15, 20 years before. And that makes it even cooler. Yeah, there's funny, there's the fart jokes, there's Lily Von Stupp, there's all the rest of it. But the parody is very, very targeted. And you see in Gene Wilder's Jim a reflection of Dean Martin's dude 
in Rio Bravo. And Dude is is one of the gentler characters as well in Rio Bravo. He, he has a kind of depth and a passion and a nature that's at odds with the cliches of a Western movie. You know, he, he's, his whole becoming an alcoholic is because a woman betrayed him and things like that. So he's a deeply passionate man and a somewhat pathetic figure who finds his own strength and moves on with it. And that's a very good character for an actor like Gene Wilder to play, uh, even a parody of. But I'm getting ahead of myself in Gene Wilder's career, and I'm actually I'm going to jump back in his career before he even made a movie. One of the other interesting things, which is a movie-related reference, is... Do you remember One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Milos Forman's movie with um, Jack Nicholson? Now, the Brad Dereef character was Billy Bobbitt in the movie, um, a neurotic little guy whom uh, McMurphy helps. In the original stage version, which was, of course was based on the novel, the original stage version played on Broadway in the early 1960s with Kirk Douglas in the McMurphy role. Totally miscast. Uh, the character shouldn't have been played by someone like Kirk Douglas, but he was passionate about it. He got the rights to it and made the play. The Brad DeReef character in the original stage play was played by Gene Wilder, which is really cool. It would be interesting if anybody had any footage of that to see just how differently Brad DeReef and Gene Wilder played that particular character. But um, Gene Wilder was successful in the role and did get good reviews for that kind of minor but very important character in One Flew Over the Cookies Nest. Now I'm going to jump back to the time just after the producers. Gene Wilder made a movie that I haven't seen but um, I'm kind of intrigued to see. A movie from 1970 directed by Bud York and called Start the Revolution Without Me. Now, this one's a little bit of an unusual project, really. Uh, it stars Gene Wilder, Donald Sutherland, Hugh Griffith is in it, Jack McGowan, Billy Whitelaw, Victor Spinetti, Ewa Orwin, Murray Melvin. So it was filmed in England. Uh, the storyline, according to IMDb, is an account of the adventures of two sets of identical twins badly scrambled at birth on the eve of the French Revolution. One set is haughty and aristocratic, the other poor and somewhat dim. They find themselves involved in palace intrigues as history happens around them, based very loosely on Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities and Dumas' Corsican Brothers. So it's got Donald Sutherland and Jim Wilder playing the two sets of twins. I've got a little bit of a clip from that where Gene Wilder is riding on horseback with a stuffed falcon attached to his arm along with uh, a female companion. The falcon's name, by the way, is Thor. Lagging behind again? I'm sorry, Philippe. I try my best to please you. How? You can't hunt. You can't ride. You can't shoot. You can't fence. What kind of a marriage is this? What kind, indeed? You pay more attention to Thor than you do to me. Wonder why? He served me far better than you. But he is dead. What? Nothing. I didn't hear you. What did you say? I didn't say Just anything. Just what you said. I didn't hear it. I said what nothing. What did you say? Nothing at all, Philippe. Philippe! I'm sorry. She's an idiot. Philippe! 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 What are you doing, Philippe? What does it look like I'm doing? I'm feeding my falcon. But Pierre is calling. Well, I don't care. I'm not a puppet. Give it run. But it must be important. Pierre is so rarely excited. More excited than I? You're saying that he gets more excited than I? No. 
Is that what you're telling me? That he gets more excited than I? No, go My on. brother gets more excited than I do. Not what I said. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No. Do you want to see excitement? No! I'll show you excitement if that's what you want to see. Oh, no, Philippe, you're much more excited than he is. Far better than Pierre. Better looking, a better horseman, everything. I like you, Philippe. I like you very much indeed. Thank you. You know, it's always good when we can talk these things out. <laughs> I'll join you in the chapel later. Very well, Philippe. Uh, bring the rawhide and honey. The other actor in that bit was a, a classically trained English actor called Rosalind Knight. Um, I'm really going to have to see that one because it sounds like it's going to be fun. And uh, both Donald Sutherland and Jim Wilder acting over the top is never going to be a bad thing to watch. From there we get on to a movie which the very name of it means it's not going to be successful. Because any movie pretty much with an unusual name in the title has less chance of success than some others. Ferris Bueller is an exception to that. But Quacks of Fortune, as a cousin in the Bronx, isn't. Um, I'll give you the praise here. This from IMDb. I just saw the trailer, which I'm going to play for you. But um, it's a light, slightly unusual movie. In Dublin, a working-class family has been unsuccessful in convincing their son to get a new real job. The son prefers his job of scooping up horse shit and selling it for flower gardens. An American exchange student almost runs him over and gets to know him. The young man has ignored warnings from his family and suddenly the horses have been banned from Dublin. His new love is leaving for America and he must find a way to cope with this new reality. So that's it. It's a romantic comedy with Gene Wilder playing a guy who likes scooping up horse shit. This is Dublin. This is my cousin Quaxer. He's a man with very special interests. Some men love food, not Quaxer. Some men love liquor, not Quaxer. My cousin, Quaxer Fortune, has a passion for... Let's just say he picks up where others leave off. Horse manure! Excuse me. Hey, do you really sell that? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's my job. This is all about Quaxer and what he did to Dublin. Where's Quaxer? That's Quaxer. That's Quaxer. So you. No, I got something on my mind and I want to talk to you. Now I listen. I have nothing to, to say to you, Quaxer. Well, just listen to me. Oh, it was foolish in the first place, the whole thing. How do you think of me? Quaxer Fortune found true beauty all over Dublin in small, neat piles. Yeah, why did they remake that one instead of remaking The Magnificent Seven? 
The love interest in that particular rom-com is played by Margot Kidder, and apparently they're both good in the movie, but it's a little bit slow and, and not very good from everything I've read of it. I haven't actually seen the film. Um, if anybody knows differently, please tell me, Biggie. But um, the idea of um, a Dung Carter falling in love with a an exchange student is slightly unusual. Let's just put it that way. Now... We're coming to an interesting period of the career of Gene Wilder now. Um, the next movie he made is one of his iconic films, of course, and that is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I don't know, but I don't like to look that tunnel up there. Hey, Wonka, I want off! Round the world and home again. That's the sailor's way. I don't like this ride, Daddy. Wonka, ask me a favor. Tell those people to stop babbling, Father. Perfectly reasonable. But I think Gene Wilder is perfect because 
he combines that craziness with the gentleness and the compassion and the love that the final scene requires of the character. Um, it's a beautiful, beautifully nuanced role and written really well too. One of the things you can't underestimate in this movie is the um, writing, particularly of um, Willy Wonka's dialogue. Um, a quote, he quotes Shakespeare, John Matesfield, Keats, um, Ogden Nash, Oscar Wilde. It's just one of those beautifully written roles. The script was by Roald Dahl. The only other script I know of that Roald Dahl wrote for a feature film was not too far away from this one chronologically. He also did the screenplay for You Only Live Twice, the James Bond film in 1967. And this movie really does work, um, even though he wasn't Roald Dahl's choice for the role. Um, you can't go past Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka. I think he nails it perfectly. He, uh, First off, he's perfect for the role. It's perfectly cast. And he really did give his A-game to it. He thought the character through. He added little bits and pieces. He enhanced the role by making suggestions to Mel Stewart, who wasn't a particularly experienced director. He was mostly known for his documentary work. But, and by the way, he is the first cousin of Stan Lee as well, Mel Stewart. Um, but really, this is a, a beautiful Gene Wilder role because there's a humanity that comes through in his playing of Willy Wonka that I find really, really appealing. Um, Johnny Depp playing Willy Wonka as a creepy Michael Jackson-y character is just wrong. I think Tim Burton should never have even attempted to remake the movie. I think it stands alone and above the 2005 version by a long way. This is just perfectly magical. I watched it last week with Sal and we couldn't find flaw in the movie, it, even though it was made on a small budget and it wasn't really successful the first time around. Um, a lot of kids saw it, but it wasn't financially successful. It's only when it came out on um, VHS and DVD and then kind of got a resurgence that the movie regained the status that it now has. And I think so very much of that is down to three things. The music by Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus is great. It's perfect. We know the songs and we love the songs. The um, set design and, and the arc of the film and the fact that Charlie is an underprivileged kid who cares about other people. He's, the, the moral core of the movie isn't Willy Wonka. The moral core of the movie is Charlie. And Peter Ostrom, who never acted again, became a veterinarian, is great because his kind of diffidence as an actor plays well into Charlie's shyness and, and kind of self-disregard that he has in there but again he's brought out by Willy Wonka and um, in, this, in that sense Gene Wilder in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory plays the Max Bialystok role in bringing the shy and uncertain and nervous younger person into their best self but um, yeah Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is just um, a perfect movie I don't think it's dated. I think it's kind of in a, a what to one side fantasy land that really works. And one of the things I want to do is get my nephew Billy, who's six, to see Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory before he ever sees the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp abortion of a movie. But um, it's one of the Gene Wilder roles that, watching it again, I was awed 
by the physical acting and I was awed by the arc of the Willy Wonka character. And it's, in fact, the movie that made me want to do this podcast about the career and life of Gene Wilder. The next credit we have for Gene Wilder is an unusual one. It's a TV movie called The Scarecrow from 1972. It's um, set during the Salem Witch Trials. And it's about an old woman who, with the devil and some magic, brings a scarecrow to life as a part of her revenge plot against a judge who used to be her lover. Now, the cast on this one is quite interesting, and unfortunately I haven't been able to find a copy of this one around anywhere, which is a little bit of a shame because based on the cast and based on that um, plot premise, it's quite um, attractive, an option to watch this film. Uh, let's see what I've got. The cast on this, Nina Fock, um, Norman Lloyd's in it, Blythe Danner, who of course everyone knows is Gwyneth Paltrow's mother, Will Gear, Elisha Cook Jr.'s in there, Anne Doran, and Tom Helmore. So yeah, it's got a, a fairly interesting... Um, cast there, which is kind of, um, if anybody can find a copy of 1972, The Scarecrow, not Scarecrow, the Al Pacino movie, but The Scarecrow, that'd kind of be an interesting film for me to watch. Um, So from there we go to the kind of portmanteau film, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex Were Afraid to Ask, directed by and written by Woody Allen. And Gene Wilder comes up in one of the vignettes as a doctor called Dr. Ross, who has a patient come in with a somewhat unusual and difficult to manage problem. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia? I am from Armenia. I am visiting my brother. I see. Um, occupation? Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm-hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with a sheep. I beg your pardon? I am in love with a sheep. Doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies. And I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely. And the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But, Doctor, there are no women. I'm not married and... Well, one night last summer, I could stand it no longer. My body needed to be satisfied. And then... I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. I took Daisy off to a little cove, and there, under the Armenian sky, had sexual intercourse. With the sheep? Naturally. 
It was the greatest lay I ever had. Now, everything you always want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. It's a movie that's dated badly. There's some really kind of sexist and rape jokey and, and kind of ugly stuff in there from a 21st century point of view. But this one, even though it's about bestiality, um, is a really great bit of acting. That silent bit you heard in the middle where you could hear traffic noise in the background was Gene Wilder reacting to the news that his patient um, is in love with a sheep. Uh, now, the, that's not the, that's only the start of this particular little vignette because he gets the patient to bring the sheep in and Dr. Ross himself falls in love with a sheep. Um, and the really groovy thing about this is Gene Wilder plays the reactions of the character realistically. It's played as if he's fallen in love with another woman rather than his wife. And, um, yeah, there's there's an absurdity to it, and there's, it's an absurdist piece of work. It really is. Yeah, you can say, well, yeah, it's horrible, and it's, you can get Peter involved in the sheep, poor sheep and all that kind of thing. But it's an absurdist comedy, and it plays through its premise meticulously well. And most of that is due to the way Gene Wilder acts the role. It's a man whose life has got out of control because he's fallen in love with somebody or, or something that he hasn't wanted to. And there's a couple of spots in here where Gene Wilder's reactions are hilarious and just perfect acting. Um, even though it's, it's, it's about bestiality, it's, it's in an absurdist kind of vein. And while we're on the subject, we can talk about another absurdist comedy that Gene Wilder did very soon after this particular movie. He did um, a filmed version of Eugene Ionesco's absurdist comedy, Rhinoceros, reteaming with Zero Mostel. Now, I've acquired a copy of this film, but I haven't rewatched it. I watched it really, you know, decades ago on late at night television. I'd heard about the movie, but um, I hadn't been able to find it except on late night television. This is so far back. That was before I could videotape things. So I'm looking forward to um, actually seeing this one. The premise of the movie is fairly simple. This is from 1974, by the way. A boozing young man in love with his co-worker finds that everyone around him, even his pompous and condescending best friend, is changing into a rhinoceros. It's an absurdist comedy. It's got Gene Wilder as Zero still Karen Black's in it as well. Joe Silva, Percy Rodriguez... Um, Anne Ramsey. I'm really looking forward to re-watching this one because uh, um, I do remember enjoying it at the time, even though it's not a perfect film, and even though it's very, very abstract and absurdist. It's um, a movie that I'm going to watch probably sometime in the next week and uh, hopefully enjoy again. Next movie you made was Blazing Saddles, which is really... Um, I've talked about it already in this podcast. It's one of the best comedies of the 1970s, no questions asked. Then he um, did a couple of smaller things, and he did a forgotten movie now from 1974 called The Little Prince, which is based on the children's story, of course. It was done as live action, and The Little Prince is a movie you really should check out if you get a chance to, because it's got a few moments of transcendence, even though a lot of it is... 
kind of heavy-handed. Um, there are some, and it was filmed in the African desert, by the way, for the most part, except the bits with Gene Wilder in it. The story of a, a little prince from another planet, a very, very small planet, which is about the size of uh, the largest ball of twine in the world. And he comes to Earth and it's, it's a little bit of a Christian allegory kind of thing. It was remade very recently as either a CG or a stop motion movie. I'm not exactly sure which. But um, it's a movie that I like the soundtrack of. And there's a couple of moments that I like. One of which is Bob Fosse singing a song called Snake in the Grass where you can see Bob Fosse dancing he's playing the devil basically but you can see Bob Fosse dancing in such a way that you instantly understand where Michael Jackson stole his dance moves from because Fosse in 1974 is doing shit that Michael Jackson did in the 80s and without acknowledgement of course now I'm just trying to load the IMDB page for um, the Little Prince, because there's a couple of other people who are interesting in the cast as well. But in this one, Gene Wilder plays a fox and gets to sing a song and does a very nice job of it. It's directed by Stanley Donnan. The cast is um, pretty good. Uh, let's see. Uh, the main character, apart from the prince, is the pilot played by Richard Kiley, a character actor I've got a lot of time for. It's got Joss Ackland in it, Clive Revel, Victor Spinetti, Graham Crowden, and um, Donna McKechnie. And I'm going to play, right at the end of this podcast, I'm going to play the song that Gene Wilder sings in The Little Prince because I think it's joyous and wonderful. He, he plays a fox who the Little Prince befriends. And he gets to sing a song. It's Gene Wilder, not particularly dressed up as a fox, but giving us a good physical performance and singing a song which gives us the character of the fox in the movie very well, in the same way that Bob Fosse playing the devil slash the snake puts his character across in an interesting way. Um, it's a movie I've got a fondness for. I've got the soundtrack to it on vinyl, which I picked up um, a long time ago because I liked it. Now, I'm going to have to pick up the pace here a little bit to get through the rest of Gene Wilder's career. I've bitten off more than I can chew, and I'm chewing like buggery. Um, there was Young Frankenstein, of course. I'm not going to go into that one, though. Sal will probably kill me for not putting the pudding on the Ritz bit with Peter Boyle and Gene Wilder, where they kind of deconstruct Hollywood musicals in a wonderful way. Uh, another collaboration of Gene Wilder with Mel Brooks, of course. Gene Wilder contributed to the script as well, and it does parody those old Universal horror films in a wonderful way. And Jim Wilder with his kind of crazy hair and, and the moustache, um, with Terry Garr and um, Madeline Kahn backing him up, Gene Hackman playing the old blind man in the movie, um, and then, of course, Marty Feldman as well. Uh, I'm really going to have to re-watch that one, I think, because it, it sounds like a, a, and one, it's one of those movies that you watch because it's a lot of fun. Uh, from there we go to The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, which... It wasn't a, a success at all. Uh, this one had Gene Wilder, Madeleine Kahn, and Marty Feldman in it again. Um, Dom DeLuise is in it. Leo McKern, Roy Kinnear, John LaMessurer, Douglas Wilmer, Thorley Walters. Oh, Jesus has got a good cast. Aubrey Morris, Tommy Godfrey. Um, I'm gonna have to, uh, This is the problem. I'm going to have to watch a lot of these movies again now that I've mentioned them. 
which um, is going to be a difficult ask. Um, then we move on to The Silver Streak, which is um, the movie he did with Jill Clayburg. Uh, and let's see, I'm just bringing up the wrong thing here. And again, as I said, I'm doing this on the hop because I haven't really had time to properly research it. I'm relying on a combination of databases and memory here. Uh, directed by Arthur Hiller, it was the first collaboration between Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Uh, Jill Clayburgh's in it playing the love interest. The bad guy is played by Patrick McGoon. I'd forgotten that. Ned Beatty's in it. Clifton James, Ray Walston, um, Scat McCruthers is in it. Richard Kyle, Fred Willard's in it as well. There are so many Gene Wilder movies that I've really got to catch up with again, and um, I'm going to be spending a hell of a lot of time doing that. Um, one of his least successful comedies comes up next, which is it was directed and written by Gene Wilder, uh, starring Gene Wilder, Karen Kane, Carol Kane, sorry, Dom DeLuise, Fritz Feld's in it as well, and it is the world's greatest lover, which is a um, kind of comedy that Gene Wilder did about the search to find a new um, Latin lover type in silent movie Hollywood after the death of Rudolph Valentino. The um, Pacey says, a neurotic baker travels to Hollywood to attend his talent search for an actor to rival the great Valentino. Although not an actor, through blind luck he, blind luck, he succeeds to a certain degree. Again, it's not a particularly successful Gene Wilder project, but it shows that he's kind of going in an interesting direction in some ways. Uh, then we get The Frisco Kid, which is um, a movie starting with uh, young Harrison Ford. Uh, a couple of years after Harrison Ford made a movie in England that was very successful. Um, a Polish rabbi wanders through the Old West on his way to lead a synagogue in San Francisco. On the way, he's nearly burnt to stake by Indians and almost killed by outlaws and teams up with a gunslinger called Tommy, played by Harrison Ford. Um, I don't remember much of this one. I've seen a clip from it today, but it didn't particularly grab me. Um, then we get into a couple of other movies that he did. Um, he did another one with Richard Pryor called Stir Crazy. Um, Skip and Harry are framed for a bank robbery and end up in Western Prison. The two Eastern boys are having difficulty adjusting to their new life until the warden finds that Skip... And I'm trying to get the rest of the pricey up. Skip has... Um, it's natural talent for riding Broncos with the inter-prison rodeo coming up. So basically, um, Gene Wilder is a rodeo champion with <laughs> Richard Pryor as well. I mean, these guys were great together. It's directed by Sidney Poitier, written by Bruce J. Freeman, who also wrote a lot of stuff for Playboy magazine. Uh, it's got a pretty good supporting cast. George Stanford Brown, Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, Barry Corbin. Um, yeah, Franklin AJ's in it as well. So, uh, very popular, but not particularly my kind of thing. Then we get up to about 1984 and you get Woman in Red, The Woman in Red, which is the movie, romantic comedy that uh, Gene Wilder did with Kelly LeBrock. On his way to work, Teddy spots Charlotte, an incredibly beautiful woman in red. He really wants to meet her, but what would his wife say? Yeah, this is probably a, one of those comedies that's dated badly and you know, comes up a bit stalkerish and creepy. Now, at the time, Jim Wilder was um, married to Gilda Radner, who unfortunately died in the late 1980s of ovarian cancer. 
But they did make a good movie together, which is Haunted Honeymoon. In um, again directed by Gene Wilder in 1986. Uh, Larry Abbott, speaker of in the radio horror shows of Manhattan Mystery Theatre, wants to marry. For the marriage, he takes his fiancée home to the castle where he grew up among his eccentric relatives. His uncle decides that he needs to be cured from a neurotic speech defect and exaggerated bursts of fear. He gives him shock therapy with palace ghosts, it says. That's a stupid premise. But um, Haunted Honeymoon, yeah, it's a... One of those kind of 80s rom-coms, and it was a chance for um, Gene Wilder to work with Gilda Radner. Dom DeLuise is in there, Jonathan Price, Peter Vaughan, Paul L. Smith, Jim Carter's in there, so it was obviously filmed in England. I uh, don't remember much about that one either, which is uh, a little bit unusual. So then we get into See No Evil, Hear No Evil, which um, is another comedy he did with Richard Pryor where Gene Wilder plays a deaf guy, and... Richard Pye plays a blind guy and they've got a kind of, they have a buddy comedy thing, they've got to escape bad guys and that kind of stuff. The interesting thing here is um, Gene Wilder filmed not long after Gilda Redner died and he met the woman who became his last wife who was teaching him how to um, read lips. She was a speech therapist. And so Gene Wilder's um, last wife, whose name I really should check because she was, lived with Jim Wilder for 25 years. Um, yeah, um, Mary, la, 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 Karen Boyer. I apologise to Karen Boyer for that. Um, they met on, on the set and um, a couple of years later they re-met and uh, got together and married and lived happily ever after, of course. Um, this is the, the kind of heading towards the end of... Gene Wilder's career. He did Funny About Love, playing a guy called Duffy Bergman. Another you. He did an unsuccessful television series called Something Wilder, which is a very, very bland premise. Um, he did a couple of TV movies. He did a TV movie of Alice in Wonderland in 1999, playing the Mock Turtle. Um, and then did um, a couple of episodes of Will and Grace in the early 2000s. And did... Um, a voice in Yo Gab the Yo Gabba Gabba movie in 2015. Jim Wilder stopped making films about 20 years ago. Um, he said the movies were getting ugly and filthy, and they were all about explosions. There weren't any really good character roles, and and um, his perception of his time had passed. He really didn't like modern films. He he said he got 52 scripts a year, and there are only three good ones in it. Sorry, he saw 53 move, 52 movies a year, and he only thought there were three good ones on it. So obviously he had a certain taste in films. And Hollywood had, for mostly probably commercial reasons, moved past Gene Wilder's kind of movie. But um, And of course, unfortunately, he died very recently um, of Alzheimer's-related complications. Uh, apparently he stayed himself, even though he did have the problems of Alzheimer's, and I'm very sympathetic to people with family members with forms of dementia because of my own personal circumstances. But um, apparently he stayed true to himself, and he died with his family around him listening to the music he enjoyed. And that's not a bad ending for anybody to have. But I think the thing I like most about Jim Wilder and, and the characters he played is that there's a gentleness to them and there's a whimsy and a kindness 
to a lot of the characters he played. Yeah, he played over the top and crazy characters at times. But the best roles we like him for are the roles where he plays to the compassionate side of human nature. We get a lot of people playing a lot of different kinds of masculinity in cinema. And yeah, last last podcast I talked about Nicole Williamson and how he played masculinity. But the other side of the coin is Gene Wilder's kind of person. Where um, even though a lot of his characters were neurotic and anxious and nervous and things like that, I don't think particularly he ever played cruel. His persona and um, the kind of roles he was drawn to because of the kind of man he was really portrayed some of the better characteristics of being a man in the modern times. And that's the sort of person I'm drawn to, too. A lot of my male friends are macho dickheads. They're kind of gentle and compassionate people because that brings out the best in me. It draws me toward my best self. And... I really like that about Gene Wilder. Reviewing a lot of his movies over the past few days, I really find that a fine and interesting quality. And maybe it's a a quality that's not particularly popular now with Hollywood and with a lot of um, portrayals of human beings and particularly men in cinema. But it's one that really works for me. Not that I don't like movies with a lot of bastards in them. I do. But now and then you kind of need that different kind of guy in films. And Gene Wilder was that guy. But anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Um, Thank you to all of you for listening. And thank you to, of course, the Patreon subscribers who help out with the podcast. Um, The two Kerrys in particular. I'm going to update the um, Patreon list before the next Martian Driving podcast, by the way. So all of the subscribers will get their credits in by the next podcast. Anyway, look after yourselves. Um, watch a Gene Wilder movie to kind of do something life-affirming and re-watch Willy Wonka, perhaps. And uh, look after yourselves. Take care. Watch some good films. Watch some bad films. Don't watch Michael Bay films. And I will be back next week with another Martian Driving podcast. I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. We're coming up on the 100th episode of Martian Drive-In and the 200th episode of Paleo Cinema. So give me some ideas what I should do for that particular podcast. Anyway, take care of yourselves. After the credits, I'm going to play that Gene Wilder track from The Little Prince that I promised you. So look after yourselves, take care, and I'll be back very soon. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, 
Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. First, I'll hide behind the trees. Trembling. Ah! As I do in winter. In time, I'll start to feel at ease. Show my face and will begin to begin to get closer. 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 We'll go a glance at a time, a small advance at a time. We'll be afraid of it and shy of it, avoid each other's eye a bit less often each day. The ice will soften each day as we get closer and closer and closer. Blush at a time, a happy flush at a time. Begin to laugh a bit and stare a bit and walk around on air a bit. As gaily we grow, as night and daily we grow, a little closer and closer and closer. And then one day, there'll come a day, a Christmas Eve. Midsummer day, a moment when, right there and then, we're gonna touch. Then we'll jump miles at a time, a million miles at a time. Begin to love a lot and live a lot and give and give and give a lot. Away we will go and every day we will grow a little closer and 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 closer all the time.
Christmas Eve Midsummer Day Begin to love a lot and live a lot and give and give and give a lot away Every day we will grow a little closer and 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 closer all the time. <laughs> 